Well, for these two Sundays uh, leading up to Advent, last Sunday and this Sunday, are doing what we're calling a a little post-election reset. And what I mean by that is is a reset of our hearts and minds toward, uh, hopefully toward the heart and mind of God uh, about all of life, but uh, particularly politics uh, during this particular time, uh, following the election, at least the vote. And um, uh, we we talked last Sunday about the importance of of Christ's call in our lives to be salt and light, uh, to maintain our saltiness, to uh, keep shining the light uh, during this particular season uh, in in all times as well. Uh, We talked about the the difficulty in, in how you go about making political decisions Uh, in the process without losing our saltiness or dimming our light. Uh, The subtitle of that message was Politics Are Important or Is Important. Actually, both are correct. I I actually looked that up. Um, Politics is important. The subtitle of the message this morning is, but not that important. But not that important. Friends, as I mentioned last week, I, I, I've never seen so much damage done to personal relationships as I have during this election season. And I'm talking about relationships within the body of Christ, something that should never, never, never happen. Uh, so let me, let me begin to get you thinking a little bit along this line. Um, as you may have, have taken walks, and we've been blessed with some tremendous weather. This is one of our, our coldest days so far this year, but uh, uh, we are blessed with tremendous weather uh, during, back during the fall. And as you walked through your neighborhood or, or drove the streets, um, if you happened to, to see a sign in somebody's yard that was promoting the candidate who was not the one of your choice, uh, how did you find yourself responding uh, did you think, well, how could they be so stupid? <laughs> or maybe you even thought, I wonder if I could sneak out in the middle of the night and steal that sign in the process. Um, but did it ever cross your mind about how you might be a better neighbor to that person? Did, you ever, did it ever cross your mind as to whether or not that person is a Christian or not? As to what needs that they may personally have? Was that mindset a, a, a part of, of your thinking? Friends, politics is important, but it's not that important. You know, the Bible tells us that there are only two things that are eternal. One is the Bible. The book of Isaiah says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God will last forever. The other thing that's inter- eternal is people. That's a very short list, and politics is not on it, is it? <laughs> It is not on it. Far too many of us have sacrificed relationships on the altars of our chosen political parties or candidates. Plain and simple. Dr. James Emery White writes, When we disagree with each other, we have two choices. We can maintain the ultimate mark of the Christian, which we'll talk more about here in just a moment. We can maintain the ultimate mark of the Christian or we can abandon and betray it, and in so doing, betray Jesus to the world. That sounds a little strong, but it's so very true. What is the ultimate mark of a Christian? Look with me at the Gospel of John. 
when you, you, uh, John takes five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, five chapters that he gives, that's a, a, almost a fourth of his gospel, that he gives just to the, the teaching, the actions and teachings of Christ just in the final few hours of his life before he was crucified. That's how important these, these actions, these teachings are. As Jesus gathered with his disciples on that night before his crucifixion, he, 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 they celebrated together what we refer to as the, Lord, as the Last Supper, the Lord, or the Lord's Supper, we call it, as we celebrate today. He washed their feet. He taught them many, many things. And among those last words that he taught them, were key teachings as to how people in the world will always know that Jesus is the real deal, that Jesus is God in human flesh who came to this earth to show us the way and the truth and the life. Again, part of his final words. That's how heavily that this whole matter was weighing down upon him. He wanted to make sure that they clearly understood the one thing more than anything else, the one thing that would authenticate the message that they were going to bring, that would, reckon, that, that would cause others to reckon with the message that they were going to be bringing to the world about him. And what was that one thing? Loving unity. Loving unity among his followers. So first he commands it, and then he prays for it. Very specifically, John 13, 34 and 35, a new command, Jesus says, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. That's what was new about that command, by the way, love one another goes back to the Old Testament. What was new about this command at this point is that he qualifies by saying, love like as I have loved you, as I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, three times in those two statements, he uses the phrase, love one another. Then in chapter 15, another command to love, beginning in verse 9, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. And then Jesus follows those commands to love with a prayer. Amazing prayer in John 17, a prayer for unity. He prays, and, and notice he prays not only for his disciples then, but he prays for his, all those who will come to know Christ as a result of the witness of his disciples all the way up to today. In other words, he prays this for you and me as well. Beginning in verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. Their message will be authenticated by their unity. Let's make sure that we clearly understand what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, he's saying that if... That, it will be this loving unity, and remarkably, loving unity alone 
more than anything else that will capture the attention of the world again and confirm that Jesus is indeed the incarnate Son of God and Savior. Madeline Lingle writes, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. You know, the early Christians apparently did a pretty outstanding job of this. As I mentioned last week very briefly, that you know, sociologists scratched their head trying to explain that the rapid growth of Christianity, where from a historical perspective, just a blink of the eye, you know, from, from the, the resurrection of Christ until the entire Roman Empire was converted to Christianity. And one of the writers, we have a witness to this, one of the writers from the early uh, 2nd century A.D. confirms this, a Christian writer and theologian by the name of Tertullian. He writes describing uh, the response of unbelievers to Christians at that time. He says, primarily, it is the acts of love that are so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. Now, don't misunderstand what the Bible means when it talks about unity. Unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all have to look alike and sound alike and think alike. Unity is not unanimity. It doesn't mean that we always have to be in total agreement 100% of the time on everything across the board. But loving unity is a oneness of heart. It's relational unity. It's the kind described in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul writes, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. And he goes down in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to one another, to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. See, biblical unity is about having grace-filled hearts toward one another. It's being willing to, to work through any conflicts that arise in a Christ-honoring kind of way. It's about avoiding slander and gossip. It's about loving one another. Some of you may have read some of the late Francis Schaeffer's books in the past, which writings that are still so relevant to us in so many ways today. He saw loving unity as the mark of the Christian. Not just a feeling of love, but a demonstration of love. And, 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 and Jesus said, it's our, again, it's our demonstration of that love that, again, is the world's litmus, litmus test <clears throat> as to whether Jesus should be believed or not. Here's how Schaefer puts it. He writes, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians 
on the basis of our observable love toward all other Christians. <laughs> That's a, just a little scary, isn't it? Just a little bit. I mean, it's, it, Jesus is telling the world, hey, heads up here. Heads up here. I, on the basis of my authority, I'm giving you the right to judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love that he or she shows to other Christians. I mean, that should jerk a pretty big knot in our heads. Because what have we seen happening during this period of time among Christians? I mean, for this past year leading up to the election, we've seen Christians ununited, divided, angrily divided, all over politics. We've seen friendships fall apart, family feuds, Christians distance from one another, not because of COVID, but because of politics, but because of candidates. Friends, this is the devil's handiwork. Christians behaving no better than non-Christians, plain and simple. It's as though no one knows how to agreeably disagree anymore, much less want to. It's a lost art. Instead, we give in to anger, dehumanizing, name-calling, demonizing, all toward one another. We don't even try to understand each other. We put our opinions, our opinions above the love of Christ. Romans chapter 14, verse 1, on the message paraphrase, he says, Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something that you don't agree with. <laughs> I mean, if you can't love a believer who disagrees with you politically, how in the world could you ever begin to love an unbeliever in the process? And very frankly, we have stopped seeing this kind of behavior as sin. As sin. But that's what it is. It, it's sin. Instead, we, we are being deceived by Satan into thinking that we're just being righteous. Don't forget, 2 Corinthians 11, the Bible says the devil masquerades as an angel of light. With our mouths, our keyboards, we spew damaging, hateful words as though nothing's wrong with it. And then we sometimes excuse ourselves by saying, well, I'm just being bold for Jesus. Well, I would ask, Jesus who? Because it's not Jesus Christ. Don't forget what he said in the Sermon on the Mount about that kind of behavior. Matthew 5, you're familiar with the command of the ancients, Jesus said, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you find yourself in, you might just find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill, Jesus said. Now, do we hear that? Jesus is saying that my hateful words, my sarcastic cuts, my character assassinations, my angry insults are all every bit as hate-filled in the eyes and the heart of God as if I had physically assaulted someone. Our words kill. They kill relationships. They kill fellowship. They kill unity in the body of Christ. <clears throat> the book of James elaborates some more. James chapter 5. 
He says, a word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it, smoke right from the pit of hell. This is scary. With the same tongues, we curse the very men and women he made in his image. My friends, this can't go on, James writes. And no, it can't. It can't. No matter how politically charged our our culture might be. Again, as we said last week, we are not primarily Republicans. We are not primarily Democrats. We are first and foremost followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot put political parties before our faith. As we talked about last week, neither party, neither the left nor the right, really adequately reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to admit to that. You may prefer a particular candidate. You may like a particular candidate. You may really, really like a particular candidate. But please remember, there has only ever been one person who was truly God's man. And who was that? Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to him. It's to him, not to a party or a platform or a person. Ultimately, again, our citizenship is not here. It's not in America. It's in heaven. So, what does it look like to interact in in a loving, unified, healthy kind of way, in a Christ-honoring kind of way? What does that look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Well, consider just a couple of, of different pictures here. One is found right in the middle of the 12 men that Jesus called to be his disciples. There were at least two of those 12 who would have been at exact opposite ends of the political spectrum in Jesus' day. One of those two was Matthew. You remember what Matthew did before it, when he was, when Jesus called him to follow him, he was a tax collector. Now, the only way that he could have had that job is if he had been in cahoots with the Roman government for whom he was collecting those taxes. Another one of the 12 was who was called Simon the Zealot. Now, who were the Zealots? The Zealots were committed to overthrow the Roman government. Oftentimes, would even attack Roman soldiers or government outposts. I mean, you put, you put Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot around the campfire at night, and it would have made for some pretty hearty discussions, I well imagine. I mean, if you think Republicans and Democrats have differences, those pale in comparison to the differences where those two guys were coming from politically. But here's the point. They engaged in loving unity together in Christ. Now, no doubt, I have no doubt that they didn't always agree on everything. But the cause they rallied behind in Christ infinitely, infinitely superseded the differences that they may have had politically. Now, think about that. Because if you have found yourself pulling away from any other Christians because of politics, then you have chosen to rally behind the wrong cause. Because there is no cause that supersedes unity in Jesus Christ. One more picture. 
You know, one of the stories that circulated uh, following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in September was the, the, the unique, deep friendship that she had with another Supreme Court justice who had died back in 2016, Antonin Scalia. Now, you may remember that during their years in the court, you know, he had been an icon of the right, right? <laughs> You're right. Is she an icon of the left? On all the votes that took place by the justices that, were, that resulted, ended in five to four, the two of them had only agreed 7%, 7% of the time, the lowest of any pairing on the court. I mean, they were diametrically opposed to one another on huge issues like abortion, the death penalty, the environment, gun control, same-sex marriage. And yet, they were BFFs. They were BFFs. Uh, 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 they went to the opera together. They celebrated, their family celebrated New Year's Eve together. They went on family vacations together. In fact, take a look at this picture. Uh, they even rode elephants together. <laughs> this was uh, on a family, one of those family vacations in India. Uh, one uh, little-known story. <clears throat> there was a time when, uh, on uh, Ginsburg's birthday, when Antonin Scalia bought her two dozen roses, and one of his clerks who, who knew what, you know, how, how opposed they were in terms of their viewpoints and their opinions. And, and he, said, he said, how in the world could you do that? You know, she's never supported you on one single five to four vote of significance that you needed. And Scalia made a simple statement. He simply said, some things are more important than votes. Some things are more important than votes. Beloved, politics is important, but it's not that important. Some things are more important than votes. Some things are more important than politics. During this moment in the history of the church, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can either unite in the love of Christ and show the world how, really, how it really is possible to be able to experience genuine community together in spite of political disagreements, or we can continue with unloving words and attitudes and actions that essentially shove our faith aside in the name of politics and ultimately destroys our witness to the world. Will we or will we not? Live out that which Jesus said will be the one thing that will capture the attention of the world and convince them of the truth of the message of Christ that we bring to them. Love one another, loving unity. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I continue to ask you to forgive me where I have spoken harshly, where I have called names, where I have unfaithfully represented the cause of Christ in this world, all because of politics. Father, Please forgive us all. 
Lord, please truly do a reset of our hearts and our minds with the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to work for true unity together in Christ. And we ask that as we do, that more and more the world might truly see that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.